This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our summer break and we return our gaze to the issues of violence, crime, and national security concerns challenging governments in Mexico and El Salvador. But first, Natalie Oninger joins us and she has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuela declared martial law along its border with Colombia this week. The Venezuelan government followed the announcement by closing various parts of the border between the countries and forcibly deporting at least a thousand Colombians who were unauthorized immigrants. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, blames Colombian paramilitary groups and criminal organizations for hurting the economy in his country. After a series of high-level meetings, Venezuela's foreign minister, Delcy Rodriguez, said the two countries had agreed to cooperate on finding solutions. We will hold meetings with various defense authorities to establish a binational security strategy. This is a grave phenomenon, and the situation not only affects Venezuelans, but 5 million Colombians living in the border region. Venezuela declared the border crisis after attacks by criminal groups left four people injured, including members of the Venezuelan military. Political upheaval in Guatemala this week. The country's top court asked the Guatemalan Congress to convene impeachment proceedings against President Otto Perez Molina, and the Congress appointed a special committee to move the process forward. Tens of thousands of Guatemalans poured into the streets in a series of nationwide protests calling for the president to resign immediately. Various corruption scandals have rocked Perez Molina's administration, and prosecutors believe they can link the president to scams that allowed government officials to walk away with millions in illicit gains. Guatemala's top court was busy this week, also deciding a controversial case concerning the country's former dictator, Efrain Rios Montt. The former dictator is 89 years old and facing charges of genocide connected to the massacre of about 1,700 Mayan Indians during the country's civil war in the 1980s. A Guatemalan court found the former dictator and members of his administration guilty more than two years ago. But... That verdict was set aside by Guatemala's top court due to technicalities. And a retrial was delayed because of legal complications and because the high court ruled there needed to be a pause between the trials. However, Rios Montt now suffers from dementia and his lawyers had sought a dismissal of charges based upon his mental state. The court ruled this week that a retrial could go forward. However, the court also ruled that if he is found guilty, he cannot be sentenced to serve any prison time due to his mental state. One stereotype of Latin Americans says they can be very passionate and emotional. But a new poll from the Gallup polling organization seems to give that image some credence. Gallup polled people in 148 countries, asking them if they experienced any of 10 emotional states in the past 24 hours. Gallup ranked countries based upon the wide range of emotions respondents said they had experienced in the past day. El Salvador and Bolivia took the top spots in the poll, with respondents reporting feelings from anger to laughter. 
Five other Latin American countries also finished in the top 10. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie, and welcome to the program. And now our focus this week on violence and crime. First, we turn to Mexico, where the ongoing drug war has claimed at least 120,000 lives in the past eight years. The spectacular prison escape by Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel, has refocused attention on the inability of the Mexican government to stop the drug cartels. Last year, the case of 43 missing students in the state of Guerrero galvanized a protest movement in Mexico, and the case put a spotlight on the collusion between local governments, police, the military, and drug gangs. We talked to Joe Tuckman about the various issues surrounding crime and violence in Mexico. She's the correspondent for British media outlet The Guardian in Mexico City, and she's the author of Mexico, Democracy Interrupted. We spoke with her via Skype, and you will definitely hear Mexico City's bustling street traffic in the background. The 43 students really did first concentrate attention on this idea or on the the evidence that the new government of Enrique Peña Nieto had not really changed the strategy and had not really done anything new and that it had only focused on what it called improved coordination as a method of of, improve, of of reducing the violence and it was obvious that that wasn't working with the 43 students. The other thing that the 43 students did was focus attention on corruption, on political corruption and make that at the very centre of the complaints about the strategy. And what we've seen since then in the last year is multiple examples of how those two issues continue to be very, very, very important. Um, at the same time, the other things we've seen have been the, the consolidation of the idea that the way the criminal scene has been developing is, is much clearer now in the last few years. I mean, there are some major cartels that have splintered and will have completely and utterly splintered. But that was the kind of common analysis of what was happening. And that it contained an element of hope in it with the idea that if those splintered cartels, even if they were horrifically violent and particularly predatory, there was the idea that in, you know, improved local enforcement could eventually get them under control. Well, we've still got that splintering, or we've still got the, 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 the violence associated with that, but we've also got now increasing evidence of the consolidation of at least two major cartels. There's the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, based in Cajilisco that has become a, a major a major player and recognizes a major player in the way it wasn't before. And it, the, 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 it's not really a resurgence, but the, the obvious fact that the Sinaloa cartel is as strong as ever, if not stronger. Now, before, about six weeks ago, that would have contained a caveat of, you know, it, despite the capture of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman in February 2014. And obviously since his incredibly spectacular and kind of unbelievable escape from jail this last month, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just another expose of, of just how strong the cartel of Sinaloa is. You, you put your finger on some interesting points there that one of the things that doesn't get discussed very much in the media is uh, we, we tend to look at things from the governmental, from the police point of view, 
we don't think about what's happening between the cartels themselves. And I think you underline here that what we've really been watching and what has really fueled and accelerated this violence in Mexico is the fact that there's been a cartel war for territory and for space and, and for, um, well, um, new schemes that, that's been going on. And as you point out, the, the big winner has been Sinaloa and El Chapo. To the degree that some observers, particularly uh, 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 particularly um, well-considered or, or uh, high-profile observer called Edgardo Buscaglia, expert in international organized crime all, all over the world, he suggests that the power of the Sinaloa cartel is now so great that it may lead to a reduction of the violence at some point as if it becomes strong enough to consolidate alliances with smaller groups around the country. Because violence is bad for business? Because violence is bad for business. And there's a certain kind of fatigue that that, that, that kicks in after uh, turf wars that have been going on so long and so intensely, um, you know, over the last decade at least. So the idea is that potentially that could bring down the, the, the violence and potentially that could give the government some um, reason to, to or some roots to back its protestations that things are getting better. But what Buscaglia underlines is even if the violence does come down under those conditions, you're not having anything approaching the strengthening of the institutions that are required to make that violence, that reduction in violence, uh, a product of, uh, of, 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 you know, a more democratic context. What you would have rather was a different kind of reign of terror in which, you know, institutions were completely supplemented by organized crime and their allies in, in, in political politics. I want to talk about those protests that we've seen in Mexico. Uh, recently, a killing of a journalist uh, brought people out into the streets. Uh, we, we've also seen a reaction to uh, the human rights abuses by, by the army, that accusations that in the fight of the drug war that, that civilians are, are becoming the collateral damage here. And, and asking that, that an institution like the Mexican military, which generally has been treated as a hands-off institution when it, when it came to criticism, needs to, to really be focused upon. I, I, I'm wondering how you see either of those. The protests have been, you know, somewhat sporadic. They they pop up over particular issues. The the case of the journalist was was particularly painful for other journalists because it happened in Mexico City, which was supposed to be a safe haven, really, for for journalists escaping violence in other parts of the country. So that brought an uncommon number of of, of people out in, in in that particular protest. I think we can expect more protests next. In, in, coming week, in coming weeks, there's two key dates coming up. One is the annual State of the Nation address of the President on, uh, on the 2nd. It's going to be on the 2nd of September. And the other is the first anniversary of the 43 students from Ayotzinapa on the, on the 26th. I think that those two dates will gauge just how strong the outrage remains. It's been kind of latent over the past few months. The human rights abuses is a very tricky issue. I mean, it's a big, big deal. That's another one of the major developments that's happened in the last, in the RCS. It has become obvious just how frequent they are. There's the case of Tlatlaya in June last year. And, and there's another case kind of brewing at the moment in Tanahuato, um, 
a few months ago, and in both those cases, there's um, fairly strong, well, I mean, in Tlatlaia, it's incontrovertible evidence that there were extrajudicial executions, not so, not presumably of, of people who were presumed to be um, members of an armed group, but who had given up before they were, they were shot, and a similar situation with a much greater number in Tampuato. Now, those, those are very sensitive um, issues for the kind of intelligentsia, for the international community, for Mexico's image abroad. Within Mexico, they don't generate quite so much concern because there is a large body of opinion that thinks that, you know, um, cartel members, well, should, should they be afforded human rights anyway? So they don't tend to be um, at the center of, of public outrage. Is it clear that, that, that cartel members are are the victims in all of these cases? No, no, that's not, no, that certainly it's not clear and, and, and there are other ones, but, but there's a, it's harder to, it's a harder kind of sell to outrage if um, the majority are, you know, there's a certain tolerance of, of, of human rights abuse still in Mexico. It's, it's lessening and there is a growing realization that if you do employ those kind of methods, you are going to bring completely and utterly um, innocent civilians going to get pulled in and going to get killed as well, um, and also an increasing recognition that if you employ those kind of methods, you're actually you might be solving a situation in the short run, but you're going to make things worse in the in in the long run, and your possibilities of instilling some kind of rule of law is uh, uh, diminish all the time. But it's still kind of um, it's it's not quite consolidated as a as a, a base for for widespread public outrage. I have heard members of the intelligentsia in Mexico, since you bring them up, privately compare these two cases to the types of um, massacres that we saw during the Civil War era in Central America uh, during the 80s and 90s. Is that hyperbole or is that accurate? I think there are shades of death squads there, without a doubt. How systematic, um, how much of it is to do with incompetence um, and 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 an inability to gauge the, the level of force required and how much of it is a systematic strategy of death squads, it's still very, very unclear. We need a lot more information. It's coming out little by little. Certainly in Tlatlaia, there were some documents um, revealed recently by a human rights organization that, um, that, that exposed a, a military order, basically, to go out at night and kill criminals. Um, that certainly certainly smelt of death squads. How widespread is that? How much was it related just to that base? It's still very not clear. Isn't this a sad postscript to your book, Mexico Democracy Interrupted? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my 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 book. When I wrote my book, which was the the I published in English in in middle of 2012, and it came out in Spanish at the end of 2013. Certainly, when it was, when I wrote it in English, it was pretty grim, but I, I saw quite a lot of um, glimmers of hope around, you know, in, in uh, greater citizen consciousness, greater mobilization. And um, some of those did kind of lead to fruition, such as the, the protest movement in the wake of the, of the uh, 43 students. But so far, none of that seems to be getting Mexico any closer to uh, democratization, real democratization. So, yeah, I'm much more pessimistic now than I was when I wrote the book. Anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered? I think it is a very key 
moment for Mexico the next few years, particularly in the context of what's going on in Latin America in general. And Mexico tends to be slightly out of step with the rest of Latin America. But on some level, the same concerns about corruption um, and about impunity and a putting that at the, at the very, very center of the debate about how to really make democracy work in the region are going on in Mexico. So it is possible that that could recover some energy and start pushing the Mexican political system towards something that, that is more respectful of, of life and, and, and liberty and general rules of the game. But it also is possible that it gets buried and that somehow this government that's extraordinarily unpopular and has been a great step backwards in democracy can consolidate its power. Thank you so much, Joe Tuckman, correspondent for The Guardian in Mexico City and the author of Mexico Democracy Interrupted, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. We've discussed security issues in El Salvador various times this summer as the country's murder rate continues to climb unabated. But since our last discussion, a transportation strike has provided further insight into the struggles of El Salvador's government against two of the world's toughest street gangs, Mara Salvatrucha Trece and Barrio Dieciocho. The government of President Salvador Sanchez-Seren of the left-wing FMLN has promised safety and security. Yet the gangs continue to kill bus drivers who try to break the transportation strike. They've also killed numerous members of the police and military. We turn to Hector Silva for his expertise on the problem. Silva is an independent journalist who often writes for Salvadoran news outlet La Prensa Grafica. He's also a research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and the author of Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran National Police. He joined us via Skype from San Salvador, El Salvador. Well, uh, sadly, the first thing to say is that it's gotten worse. Uh, just today, I was uh, talking to colleagues of mine that, you know, work here in El Salvador. And they've been um, specifically with two of them that work at El Faro, uh, you know, the, the electronic outlet here that's very a very important reference of journalism down here. And they, they wrote a piece um, within the yeah, past month about how police have um, targeted a specific um, unit or, or gang members in, in a rural town, a rural part of the country, and executed them. And, uh, and how gangs retaliated. And actually, you know, gangs put this country to its knees. But uh, the thing is that these journalists have been, they, they uh, publicly uh, reported uh, death threats today and they went to the attorney general's office to, 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 made, uh, to make a formal complaint. And, uh, um, you know, to, by talking to... These are death threats aimed at them? Yeah, yeah, uh, directly at them. Um, I mean, there's been a thing uh, this afternoon about that in the uh, social networks and, in, you know, some electronic media. 
And yeah, they one of them reported that um, an unknown guy dressed as uh, you know the, the the employer employee of some uh, company went to his to the neighborhood that he lived in and asked uh, tell him where this guy the, the journalist lived because he was there to to repair his refrigerator. That was a lie. He was trying to actually you know get to know where he lived. He actually lived and 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 that's just, that that's that was just the, the last. Uh, events in you know in a series of events of you know phone calls and and a lot of you know nasty talking in social networking and um, follow followings in the streets and all these kind of stuff which you know again reminds us of those years in the eighties. Uh, so the situation has escalated. Uh, the the government government of President Sanchez Heron has absolutely no control of this. Uh, has proven itself very very inefficient to deal with this situation and it's you know all the government officials all you hear is they're justifying themselves you know this is one of the worst situations in terms of of, of citizen security that's, that this country has lived in since, since the war ended and yes it has to do with a, a very complex uh thing as it is uh, you know the the, the gangs uh, you know the, the the youth gangs that were in the united states and now are very complex and violent criminal structures uh, that yes, were nurtured and, uh, and and grew and sophisticated themselves during their inner governments, but you know uh, now uh, they are a very very strong and and violent actor again. And uh, you know, right now, what ha what's happening is that the government has decided, as it seems, uh, to respond just uh, by force. And there's a lot of talk about that. The good thing is that there's some boys, there are some voices that are talking about this, even voices that, that do um, agree with a, a, a repressed response by the state. But what they're saying is, I'm talking about academics and, and journalists, and they're saying, hey, listen, if you're going to do that, do it, do it uh, well. I mean, do it the right way. I mean, you, uh, you mentioned the, 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 the captures. The the okay, so they captured 140 gang members, right? These guys are going in front of a judge tomorrow, I think, at 2 p.m. All of them, and it's not all of them, you know, 9% of them are going to be free because there's no case built against them. You know, they're there because you know, uh, I don't know. The attorney general said, yeah, yeah, you you were part of that, but there's no proof, so there's no good in that. You know, and again, I mean, there's a a, a general discussion on how to deal with this as not just from the state, but as a society. And there's a lot of, of rage here. You know, there's a lot of rage coming from the common citizens saying, stop. I mean, uh, why should I uh, take this? I mean, why should I pay one third of my salary, which, you know, barely gets me to the end of the month with my kids or four kids? And why should I pay a third to these guys? Uh, and what was the state to deal with this or have me deal with this? Right? Uh, it is very complex. It is getting very complex. There's a lot of people saying things like, you know, kill them all. And, and uh, But, you know, in the middle of that, is I, what I, I, I do see that there's an analysis, a serious analysis. And, okay, this is a criminal institution. This is a criminal organization that has, yes, social roots. This is not the Cosa Nostra or the Yakuza in Japan. This is a um, criminal structure that's embedded in, in poor communities. 
So if you think uh, with the kill them all policy, well, you will have to kill them all, including the, you know, the, the fathers, the, the, the parents, the relatives, and that's not it. I mean, that's, uh, that's deep down in, in the whole of violence. But, but then again, there's, there's people saying, okay, if you want to really target the criminal structure, do it. You know, with police intelligence, with spe specialized units. But then again, Rick, what, what you see is a police that's, uh, uh, you know, bent to its knees. You know, ill-prepared, highly corrupt in the high ranks, uh, with no resources to deal with this. Um, so it's, it's, it's really complex. We have talked in the past about the iron fist approach. And, and as you point out that the rhetoric has shifted to be um, less sensitive to those criminal organizations. But many people, when they're not following MS-13 and Barrio 18, the, the two huge street gangs that are part of this, don't realize that when we talk about street gangs, we're not just talking about a dozen people here and a dozen people there. In, in the Salvadoran case, we're talking about tens of thousands of people who are connected to these gangs, are we not? Of course, of course, and just that. These guys have become, uh, for, for the young for the youth of this country, and I'm talking here about the, 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 the poor neighborhoods, you know, uh, from low middle class to, to really poor neighborhoods, both urban and rural, uh, th that's what, that's what uh, these youngsters want to be, because there's nothing else. I mean, there's no jobs, there's no, uh, there's a really, uh, you know, high sense of hopelessness. And this has to do directly with the United States. Because what you can see these youngsters thinking is, okay, what are my choices here? One's joining the gang, and a lot of them are doing that, uh, probably less than before, but still a lot of them, uh, them are doing that, or the other choice is, is going north to the United States. And that's what's happening. You know, a third of the population, suburban population is already out and the pace of immigration hasn't slowed down. You know, when you talk to these kids, it's, I'd rather risk it in a very risky trip and, and you know, face all the things that I have to face in, in, in a country like the United States. Uh, you know, uh, adaptation is very hard for these kids, but they'd rather do that than stay here. So at the end of the day, what was happening is that we're losing another generation to immigration or to death, for both by gangs. Well, what could go worse? Hundreds of people dead every month, the, the death rate skyrocketing to getting close to being the most dangerous country in the world, uh, a transportation strike, and, 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 and political gridlock at the same time. Um, how could this get any worse? Uh, well, it seems like there's not much space to it, but it is. Sadly, keep in mind that these are very unequal countries in economic terms. Uh, there's a lot of inequity here, and most of this violence is happening in the poorest side of the country, as I said. I mean, if you come to San Salvador, yes, you will feel the tension. Uh, it's all over the news and, you know, in, in the conversation with friends and family. That's what the main thing in the tables. But then again, if you live in, you know, in a middle-class neighborhood, and you're used to, you know, having an unarmed guy protecting your neighborhood or, or, or the school of your kids. It's, it's a pretty regular life, you know. Uh, so, you know, inequity plays a role here. Uh, but the thing is that, uh, and, and there's a very, very, very dangerous trap. Immigration is the very economic force 
sustaining this country. This country, the, the, the economic force, I mean, the economic activity of these countries is services. Services that are aimed to the money that comes from, from the United States. Uh, yeah, what, and at the end of the day, what could go worse is more people leaving this country and more dead bodies. Well, on that sad note, thank you so much, Hector Silva, an independent Salvadoran journalist and research fellow with American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, joining us today via Skype from San Salvador, El Salvador. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. This summer, Latin Pulse is available on a variety of new online platforms, including the new website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find us there at Latin America Goes Global, all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Las Rocas Productions.